Uh, the ser- sermon title this morning is Heaven's War Comes to Earth, and you'll understand that as we go through this message this morning. I've read through the Word of God many, many times over the years I've been saved. And I'm going to confess, even after going through it all those times, I still every so often catch myself wondering if what I'm reading is really true, if what I'm really, really happened the way God's Word says it does. Uh, there are some things in the Word of God that are just so remarkable, it's amazing that they're really true. Although I have no doubt that they are, you understand what I'm saying. We spent last week's uh, under, uh, understanding the, the background of this book, understanding uh, the background of the book of Job. And we did that so we could see the historical context of this book. It's very important when you look through the book of Job as you go through this to realize this really happened. This is not just some story. This really happened. Job was a real person in history. He lived in a real place. He had a real family and he had real friends. And the reason that is important is because I believe Job is one of those books that seems almost impossible to be true. The account of Job's life is wilder than any science fiction thriller you might have seen or read. And so if we don't keep that in mind, that there's a historical reality to this book, you're going to have a tendency to see this book as just a story, as just an allegory, some type of parable, and not reality. It seems almost impossible that what happened really happened to this man. It's difficult to believe that anybody would be asked to endure all that Job endured. And yet this story is true from beginning to end, and it really happened. And when we read the book of Job, it's as real as anything you might read about Abraham Lincoln or George Washington or any other historical figure. And we're going to miss the power and the meaning of this book unless we keep that in mind as we go through it. Now, the first chapter of this book goes through, actually sets us up in two different places, two different scenes. There's a scene that takes place somewhere unidentified, and it occurs between God and the devil. And then there's a scene at Job's house as the events of heaven have an impact on Job and on his family here on earth. Now, our focus this morning is going to be on the person of Job and on the beginnings of his suffering as he has put through the worst trial anybody could ever imagine, the worst trial I believe any man on earth has ever gone through aside from Jesus Christ himself. And so the first thing we want to see this morning as we we begin this study, we want to see the character of Job, the character of Job. Uh, We see his character identified for us in verses 1 through 5. Matt just read that a few minutes ago. And the first thing we want to see about Job is that Job was a perfect man. Look at verse 1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was perfect and upright and one that feared God and eschewed evil. Now, that word perfect in the word of God has caused a number of theological problems for people. There are those who read that word perfect and believe that it means sinless when applied to the character of people on this earth. And as a result, there are those who believe that it's possible for a person to work their way toward a state of sinless perfection while they're in this life. Uh, There are uh, denominations that teach that it's possible to grow in the Lord so much to the point where we simply no longer sin. And I think one of the reasons that we find it hard to believe the book of Job and relate to him is because we often misinterpret that word uh, perfect there uh, in describing Job. If Job was sinless, it's very difficult to relate to him. It's very difficult to see him on a human level. Uh, That phrase, sinless perfection, that many believe in, is not a biblical phrase. You will not find that anywhere in the Word of God. Uh, There is no such thing in the Bible as sinless perfection except as applied to Jesus Christ. No person on earth is sinless, and no person on earth will ever be sinless, no matter how good and how moral they may be. Uh, 1 John 1, 8 says this, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. So Job was not perfect in the sense of being sinless. Uh, Look at the context of verse 1 again, and we'll understand what that means when it says he was perfect. It says that he he was perfect and upright, 
one that feared God and eschewed evil. So there we have it. That's the description of his perfection. He was perfect and upright. He feared God and eschewed or avoided evil. Noah is also a man who is described as perfect. Listen to the description of him in Genesis chapter 6, verse 8. It says, But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a just man and perfect in his generations. Listen to it. And Noah walked with God. Notice that in both cases, connected to their perfection is upright living and a close walk with the Lord. That word perfect in the word of God means to be living a life in accord with God's will. It means living a life according to God's standard. It means that Job and Noah were living lives that were as close as humanly possible to the way that God desired his children to walk. We find that thought expressed for us in the New Testament in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16. Paul writes, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, listen to it, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Perfect there is connected to being thoroughly furnished unto all good works. As we allow God to work in our lives, as we allow God's word to get into our souls and have an impact upon us, the result is we will live lives as close to his standard as we possibly can while still trapped in this flesh. It is not possible for you and I to be perfect. Don't ever try to do that. It's not going to work. Some people may think they're perfect, but they simply aren't in the sense of being without fault. But it is possible for you and I to grow so close to the Lord, to be so connected to the Lord, to have his word and his spirit so con- having such control over us that sin does not have dominion over us. It doesn't take hold and control us. We are all sinners. We're all going to sin. That is not an excuse for doing nothing about it. And I've heard folks sort of throw up their hands and say, well, I'm just a sinner. Well, that's true. But that doesn't mean you don't address that sin. We are required to address that sin. I need to be constantly monitoring my walk, constantly walking, drawing closer to the Lord, constantly conforming myself more and more to his standard so that sin in my life is minimal and under control. And when I do that, I'm demonstrating a life that is upright and thoroughly furnished unto all good works, so much so that people in my world see Jesus Christ in me and are drawn to him because of what they see. And again, that's what this study is really all about. We learn Jesus Christ through suffering, and as we learn Jesus Christ, we become more like Jesus Christ. As we are more like Jesus Christ, we draw people to him. And that's the whole focus of all we're doing here in this study and actually in this church. Jesus Christ is the only one who was ever perfect, who walked in total, complete sinlessness. And just as Job was attacked by the devil, so also Jesus Christ was stalked by the God of this world throughout the time he lived here. So much so that the devil actually tried to get him to sin on three different occasions. Tried to get him to give in to what he wanted. By the way, it's a good time for me to mention this to you. Uh, Throughout this study, you're going to see Job a picture or or a type of three different things. As I mentioned to you last week, uh, Job is a picture of a Jew going through the tribulation time. That's number one. Here's a picture of what that time will be like and how that Jew going through that time will be suffering through those difficult years. He is also a picture of Lord Jesus Christ as he suffered on the cross. A Job in this type shows us the extent of the torment that Jesus Christ went through to pay for our sins and pay for the sins of the world. He is also the picture of a lost man in hell. He shows the extent of the misery and torture that every lost person will go through for all of eternity. 
And so as we go through this study, we'll see these pictures pop up from time to time. Each time that happens, they're going to reveal new truth to us about what each of those types represent. So Job was a perfect man in the sense that he walked as close to the Lord as possible. Notice also in verse 2, and there were born unto him seven sons and three daughters. Not only was he a perfect man, he was also a prolific father. He had ten children. Uh, that qualifies him for the full quiver award, as far as I'm concerned. That's a lot of kids. <laughs> uh, ten in Scripture is the number of fullness. So he had a family that was full and complete from every aspect. Look at verse 3. His substance also was 7,000 sheep and 3,000 camels and 500 yoke of oxen and 500 she-asses and a very great household, so that this man was greatest of all the men of the east. Job was also a powerful citizen. If he was Jobab of Genesis, like we looked at last week, he was a great king at Edom, and that would explain his great wealth that God's word listed here for us in verse 3. Now, let's just, just address this matter of wealth for a minute, because there's a variety of thought about wealth among believers, among those in Christianity. Some teach, and, have, and even teach today, that having great wealth is sinful, that having great wealth implies that a person is carnal and worldly. They teach that nobody can live the way God wants them to live and be wealthy at the same time. And then there are others, such as the TV evangelists and some Christian authors, who would say that great wealth is available to all of us, that wealth is given to those who have great faith, that wealth is a sign of spirituality, and that we should name it and claim it, and God will give anything that you want to you. That teaching proclaims that the more a person is in God's will, the more that God will give to them. And the more sin that is in a person's life, the less that God will give to them. And so you can look at a person's economic standing and understand how much sin is in their life. If they've got little, they're great sinners. If they've got a lot, they're not great sinners, according to that teaching. Now, at the same time, let me say this. Uh, neither of those views is biblical. Just because a person has great wealth does not mean they're carnal and unspiritual. And at the same time, God has not promised wealth to all of us, and some of us can name it and claim it for the rest of our lives and still not get the wealth we seek, simply because God's wealth is not part of God's will for us. The reality is, folks, wealth is never the problem. Wealth is never the problem. It is the priority that some people place on wealth that's the problem. Wealth is something that can be used to bring glory to God if it's used in his service. Wealth can also be a stumbling block if it becomes a focus and the goal of our lives. Uh, wealth is, can be, go either way. And even those who have little can become focused on material things to the point where it takes priority over doing God's work and being content with what they have. There are many, many folks who have been equipped by God to do great things, but they're so focused on making money and gaining wealth that it gets in the way of them serving God. And God can't use them as a result. Wealth is not the problem. Their focus on wealth, their priority on wealth, is the problem. God gave Job great wealth. That in no way implies a lack of spirituality because, again, in verse 1, he's called a perfect man. Job did not name it and claim it to get the wealth he had. As a man who was upright, Job had his priorities in order, and his wealth was just another tool that God gave him so Job could use it in his service to the Lord. If God gives you something, folks, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ and God gives you something, he gave you that thing for a purpose, not just for you to hold on to. He gave you that thing to use in service to him. Everything that we have, God has given to us in service to him. We are excited to be in this new building. I believe God has blessed this church greatly by allowing us to be here. But this is just a tool God has given us to serve him. 
This building is not the focus. This building is not the priority. This building is a tool God has given us to serve him in new ways in this place. And I believe that is true with whatever God gives us, whether it be our church or us as individuals. Then notice verses 4 and 5. His sons went and feasted in their houses, everyone his day, and sent and called for their three sisters to eat and to drink with them. And it was so when the days of their feasting were gone about that Job sent and sanctified them and rose up early in the morning and offered burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus did Job continually. Job was a protective parent. Job was a protective parent. That phrase there in verse 4, everyone his day, most likely is a reference to their birthdays, the birthdays of his children. Job speaks of his day in Job chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. So apparently Job was concerned that his children would get carried away in the celebration of their birthdays and would sin as a result. Job was a good father. He always was concerned about his children, always wanted what was best for them. He was concerned about them staying on course and keeping their lives pure. And so Job would offer sacrifices for them. Even though Job was a Gentile, even though the law was not yet in place, Job was aware that sin could only be settled by sacrifice and the shedding of blood. Only way sin is settled. And the first priority of every person on this earth should be to make sure that they are under the blood. The first thing every person needs to do is make sure they have trusted the Lord Jesus Christ, his payment on the cross, as payment for their sin. And then those who have children, the next priority must be to get their children under the blood. Every godly parent, the next step they take is to make sure their kids are saved, that Jesus Christ has provided for their salvation as well. It is amazing to me, and I've worked with a lot of parents over my years in my other job. It is amazing to me how many parents I meet who consider themselves to be good parents, but never do anything to address the spiritual condition of their children. And they think they're doing the right thing. They allow their children to make their own choices about the church and about providing spiritual needs. I've talked to parents who said, I let my kids make their own decision about whether or not they go to church. Well, I don't know very many kids on their own who are going to get up on a Sunday morning and find some way to get into church. Unless mom or dad is going to help them do it. But they say, I'm letting my kids make that decision. And they feel they're providing all they need to provide to their kids by doing that. We've heard of the physical neglect of children, which can result in those children being removed from those parents if it's severe enough. But parents can ignore the spiritual condition of their children, practice spiritual neglect, and still be considered good parents. Well, in God's eyes, they're not providing the one thing that those children need above everything else. And so that's the second priority. Make sure the kids are under the blood. Here's the third priority of every parent. Pray fervently for your children. Pray fervently for your children. Ask God to... Make those kids and work in those kids' lives in such a way that they would fully commit themselves to the Lord, that they would make right choices, that they would deal with sin in their lives, and that their hearts would be fully and completely committed to God. And I want to tell you something, folks. That starts the day that kid's born, and it lasts until you die or the kid dies. (laughs) You pray for that kid the rest of their lives. Fervently for those kids. And I don't care what stage of spirituality they're in. I don't care where they are in their walk with the Lord. It makes no difference whatsoever. Pray fervently for those children. Provide a good education. Giving them a good start financially. Helping them obtain the good things in life are reasonable goals to have. But none of those things should take priority over the first goal. And that is to make sure that they're under the blood and they're walking with Jesus Christ. 
Parents can give their, good, their kids a good start in life from a human point of view, but if they don't know the Lord, those parents have not done the one thing that they needed to do to get those kids right, and that's to get them to follow Jesus Christ. And I believe the Bible would say they failed as parents as a result. If I've given my kid everything and missed giving them the one thing they need, I have failed as a parent. The first concern, get them under the blood and get them walking with the Lord. So Job was a godly, wealthy, good, influential man. He had right priorities. He had good values. He was a sinner. We're all sinners. But Job was exceptionally good at applying God's principles to his life. And as a result, James 5.11 holds Job up as an example that we should follow. And yet the life of this good, godly, faithful man is about to fall apart. In Job chapter 1, verses 6 through 12, we see the challenge from God. The challenge from God. And the first thing I want to deal with in this section is the sons of God in verse 6. Look at verse 6. Now, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them. Who are these sons of God that the Bible refers to? We talked about this on a Thursday night not too long ago. Let me review a little bit of what we discussed then. I'd like you to hold your hand there in Job chapter 1 and go to Job chapter 38. So a few pages over, go to Job chapter 38, because these sons of God are mentioned again in Job 38. When you get there, look at verse 6. Job chapter 38, verse 6. It says, Whereupon are the foundations thereof fastened? He's speaking of the creation of the universe and of the world. Uh, Or who laid the cornerstone thereof? When the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy. There those sons of God are again, and they're connected with the morning stars. Now you're aware the stars in Scripture can refer to angels. Revelation chapter 1, verse 20 is an example of that. So it seems like these sons of God in chapter 1, verse 6, are actually the angels. What kind of angels were they? Well, they're appearing with Satan. They can't be angels of God. I believe the Bible tells us about these angels in Jude chapter uh, Jude 6 and 7. The Bible says there, I will therefore put you in remembrance, though ye once knew this, how that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed them that believed not. And the angels, which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, He hath reserved an everlasting change under darkness, under the judgment of the great day. Back in Ezekiel chapter 28, we have the fall of Satan. Remember, Satan decided he wanted to be above God. He wanted to be in the place of God. So he organized this rebellion. And since he couldn't overthrow God, Satan and his angels that rebelled with him were thrown out of heaven. I believe those are the sons of God here in Job chapter 1 and verse 6. And they're appearing before God with Satan himself. Now, notice the status of Satan here. Look at verse 6 again. It says, The sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them. That word Satan means adversary. That's how he is described throughout Scripture. You have one enemy this morning, and that is Satan. First Peter 5, 8 says, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about, seeking whom he may devour. And so according to this verse in Job chapter 1 and verse 6, there must be times when Satan and his associates appear before God and they give account of themselves, a report on their activities. Now, I can't explain how this happened. I'm not even sure where this happens. The Bible doesn't tell us that specifically it happens in heaven. It is hard for me to believe that God would allow the essence of evil, Satan himself, to enter the gates of God's dwelling place. So maybe God had a special place for them to meet and he reviewed them at that place. 
But what this says to me is this, and this is a great truth I want you to get a hold of this morning. The Bible tells us Satan roams the earth. He seeks who he may devour. But ultimately, God has control over him. He may be roaming, he may be seeking, but God has full control over him, and he accounts to God for everything that he does. Satan may have some power, but as in everything else on earth, in the end, he is subject to the Almighty. He's got to answer to him, the all-powerful God. Look at verse 7. And the Lord said unto Satan, Whence comest thou? God asked Satan a question. He says, Okay, Satan, where you been? Give account. Look at the answer. Uh, And he said, from going to and fro in the earth and from walking up and down in it. Satan says, well, I've just been walking up and down in the earth. Again, 1 Peter 5, 8, he walketh about seeking whom he may devour. Realize, folks, this morning, where you sit, not this church specifically, but in this world, this is Satan's domain. Where you are this morning is in Satan's territory. This is his world. The Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 4, Satan is the god of this world. 2.2, he is called the prince and power of the air. When Satan tempted the Lord in Matthew chapter 4, verses 4 through 8, the Bible tells us Satan offered to Jesus Christ all the kingdoms of the earth if Jesus Christ would just bow down and worship him. And although our Lord held up against Satan's attack, the Lord never once questioned Satan's claim to the kingdoms of this world. So here we have Satan walking down through the earth. In those days, walking through a piece of land indicated ownership. When a person bought a piece of property, they had walked the entire perimeter of that property just to show all around that they now own that property. Here we have Satan walking up and down through the earth. It's a symbol of ownership. Satan has power over this present world, but understand, please, he is under the power of the sovereignty of God as as well. So God has given Satan this place for a time, and there will come a time when it will be removed from him, and God will take over and have direct control over all of it again. But I want you to understand, please hear me this morning, uh, you are walking on Satan's territory every day that you're on this earth. It's his territory. This is not our home, folks. You don't reside here forever. This is a temporary dwelling place for you. I know there are Christians who believe and walk as though uh, they are to settle here. Scripture is clear. Don't settle here. Don't settle here. This is not your final place. There are Christians who have made themselves comfortable here and are making a a feather in their nest here and so forth. Listen to me. They are resting in foreign territory. It's not their land. If we set our sights here, then the things that happen on this earth are going to matter to us more than they should. And I know there's all kinds of crazy things going on in the world today. I get all that. But folks, don't get your sights set here. Get your sights set to where you're going. And what God would have you to do while you go there. Don't set your sights here. It'll disturb your peace. It'll disrupt your joy. This is not our home. This place is going to burn up someday. We have our sights set on a better home. That one that Jesus Christ is personally preparing for us. And our job here is not to get settled here, but to do all we can to take people with us when we go. That's the whole idea. So this is Satan's territory. He's walking through the earth. Now, next, I'd like you to see the summons from God. Look at verse 8. And the Lord said unto Satan, watch it, hast thou considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in the earth, a perfect and an upright man, one that feareth God and escheweth evil. Now, folks, I believe chapter 1, verse 8 of the book of Job is one of the most remarkable, incredible verses in the entire word of God. 
Why do I say that? I say that because this is not Satan's challenge to God. This is God's challenge to Satan. Look who brings up Job's name first. God did. God says to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? Have you thought about my servant Job? By the way, Satan, have you noticed my servant Job? Have you seen him? God has such confidence in Job's character. God has such confidence in Job's testimony that he is willing to stand Job up to the attack of the devil. And God has full confidence that Job will handle that attack. What's that tell me? Well, it tells me a couple of things. It tells me, first of all, that there is no trial that comes into my life that is not under the direct control of God. God may use Satan as his, as his delivery boy to send that trial to us, to try our faith, so that we can grow stronger in the Lord and on our walk with him. Paul talked about that in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Remember, Paul said he was given a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan, he said, to buffet me so that he might grow stronger in Jesus Christ. Now, whatever trial you're facing this morning, whatever trial or attack you might go through, please understand God is in control of it. God has designed it for you, and if we respond properly to that, it will help you grow in Jesus Christ. I know our tendency is to get away from these things when they happen, but that's the wrong approach, as tough as it is. What you need to do is embrace the trial because God has designed that trial for you, and he wants to use that trial to make you more like Jesus Christ. Now, in verses 9 through 11, we see that Satan is not impressed with God's challenge. Look at those verses. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Doth Job fear God for naught? Hast not thou made an hedge about him and about his house and about all that he hath on every side? Thou hast blessed the work of his hands and his substance is increased in the land. But put forth now thine hand and touch all that he hath and he will curse thee to thy face. Satan, not impressed whatsoever, a, a man that is perfect and eschews evil. And Satan's, yeah, but he's got a reason to do it. If you, take some of your, if you take your hands off him, if you'd allow some of his blessings to be removed, here's what I think Satan says. Satan, thinks, Satan says, I think he'd curse you to your face. I think he'd curse you. Here is Satan, the accuser of the brethren, chipping away at the testimony of Job. And folks, I want to tell you something. Nothing has changed in 5,000 years. Satan is doing the same thing today that he did way back then, accusing the brethren, accusing the brethren, accusing the brethren, making the same claims against us that he made against Job. Please understand, in a place that we can't see, there's a battle going on, and you're the focus of it. You're in the middle of it. There's a place there where spiritual warfare is real, and it can affect your, you, your life any day that you're on this earth. Satan's job is to try to distract you and destroy you, and he will use whatever means he can available to make that happen. But look at verse 12, if you would. And the Lord said unto Job, unto Satan rather, Behold, all that he hath is in thy power. That should make you shudder. <laughs> all that he hath is in thy power, only upon himself put not forth thine hand. So Satan went forth from the presence of the Lord. God has such faith in Job. God has such respect for Job and such confidence in his testimony that he gives Satan permission to remove some of Job's blessings. Now, here's what I wonder. I wonder if God would have that kind of faith in me. I wonder if the Lord would trust me to endure the same kind of attack that he put upon Job and allow me to go under the same struggle that Job went through. I wonder if he would have the same confidence in me that I would hold up under that attack, that I would continue to trust God and would not renounce him 
and renounce what I believe. You know what God says here in Sabaka's language? Satan, take your best shot. Take your best shot. Do the best you can and see what he does. And again, this is God's challenge to Satan. God brought it up. Take your best shot, Satan, and see what you can do. So in verse 13, we begin to see the attack on Job and upon his family. We begin to see Job, who's living a good life, a life that is perfect in God's eyes, deeply enjoying the blessings of God. He suddenly receives word of an unbelievable, unimaginable calamity. Look at verse 13. And there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their eldest brother's house. And there came a messenger unto Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the asses feeding beside them, and the Sabians fell upon them and took them away. Yea, and they have slain thy servant, the servants, with the edge of the sword, and I only am escaped to tell thee. A tribe of Job's enemies, the Sabians, come down and destroy his oxen and his cattle and his servants. And one servant escapes. And is able to report what happened. But before he even tell, finished telling Job what went on, another servant arrives, torn and tattered, and gives his report in verse 16. Look at it. While he was yet speaking, there came also another and said, The fire of God has fallen from heaven, and hath burned up the sheep and the servants, and consumed them, and I only am escaped alone to tell thee. Fire came down from heaven, and in a split second destroyed all of Job's sheep and all of his servants. That fire, by the way, gives us a connection to the tribulation. In Revelation 13, 13, the Bible tells us when the false prophet attacks the Jews during that time, he'll call down fire from heaven as part of the attack. That prophet will be attacking God's sheep and God's servant, just like what happened here in the book of Job. So one servant also escapes this attack, reports on the disintegration of the remains, of the final remains of Job's empire. Look at verse 17. <coughs> While he was yet speaking... There came also another and said that Chaldeans made out three bands and fell upon the camels and have carried them away, yea, and slain the servants with the edge of the sword, and I only am escaped alone to tell thee. Job's camels and the remainder of his servants have been killed. In a matter of minutes, Job has gone from rag, from riches to rags. His once great empire is destroyed, all the material blessings have vanished, and all but two of his servants have been killed. And if that weren't enough to shake his faith, the news comes that he receives next is worse than anything that he has heard up to that point. Look at verse 18. While he was yet speaking, there came also another. I'm sure by now Job was turning the other way when he saw these guys coming. (laughs) And said, thy sons and thy daughters were eating and drinking wine in their eldest brother's house. And behold, there came a great wind from the wilderness and smote the four corners of the house and it fell upon the young men and they are dead. And I only am escaped alone to tell thee. A tornado apparently hits Job's house, the house rather Job's children are in. Every one of them, all ten of them, are killed in a matter of seconds. Before Job can even assimilate all this news of his loss of fortune, he realizes and finds out his entire family, all of his children, all of their wives have been destroyed. Let me pause here for a second. What was I saying about my problems? What was I saying about the things that are occurring in my life that are so desperate and so difficult for me? I want to be very careful this morning not to minimize what you might be going through. I realize there are people going through things in this church. Uh, They're going through things or have gone through some things that are very difficult, life-changing struggles. And I know those things seem unbearable at times, seem far beyond what you're able to deal with, uh, equipped to bear. They're real trials with real consequences. 
But that being the case, and even with all that being true, I don't know anybody who's gone through what Job has gone through. Any one of those trials that Job experienced would have been enough to put many of us down for the count. But Job had all of this happen to him all at once. In a matter of minutes, Job loses everything that he has, almost everybody that's dear to him. In a single blow, it's all gone. And I'd not be surprised if I read the next verse and I found Job responding by giving up or by giving in. I could see Job blaming God for all that went on because I could put myself in his place and think that's my, what might be what I would do. Look at verse 20. Then Job arose and rent his mantle and shaved his head and fell down upon the ground and worshipped and said, Naked came I out of my mother's womb and naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave and the Lord had taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this Job sinned not nor charged God foolishly. What you see there is Job's backbone. Job's backbone. He responds to this news in several different ways, and I want you to notice them this morning. First of all, he responds in humility. He tears his clothes and shaves his head. That was an oriental way of that time of expressing humility and anguish. When he did that, Job was basically saying that all that he had was given to him. He had received none of it by his own efforts, and if God wanted to take it, he could take it because it was not his. He acknowledges all that that he had was God's to begin with. And then he does a remarkable thing. Look at verse 20 again. Job arose, rent his mantle, shaved his head, fell down upon the ground, and worshipped. And worshipped. The first thing Job does, he gets down on his face and worships God. Those first words of Job were not words of complaint. He didn't get angry. He didn't blame. He didn't question. That verse says the first thing that Job did was worship the God of heaven. Now, there's a lot of talk this day about worship. We talk about styles of worship and attitude in worship and so forth. I don't think we're really getting the full idea of what biblical worship is all about. Folks, worship is not listening to a song, lifting hands to the ceiling, and swaying with your eyes closed. That doesn't even scratch the surface of true worship. To truly worship God is to meet with him at such a level and to come to him with such a sacrifice that we walk away from that experience totally transformed. That's worship. Only when all the distractions of life are stripped away, only when our focus is on him and nothing else, will true worship occur. Folks, listen to me. Worship is primarily not an emotional experience. There may be emotion involved in it, but the true goal of worship is not just to feel something. People walk out of a church having gone through some experience, and they'll say, boy, I really felt it this morning. I really was into the worship. (laughs) Well, that's okay. All well and good. But worship is not going to happen because of music. Worship is not going to happen because of some message. Worship will happen as it happened with Job when nothing else and no one else matters than meeting with God and knowing him more. If you're here this morning and you didn't come for the reason of meeting with him and growing closer to him, folks, you haven't worshipped yet. You may have sung those songs. You may have sung those songs and every word you knew and every note you knew. But if you didn't get close to him in the process of that, you haven't worshipped yet. When you draw close to him and you begin to know him better than you ever have before and you realize what he's done for you and you realize he had no reason to do it because you were a filthy, dirty, lost sinner and he did it anyway, that's when worship starts. That's when it starts. 
and not before then. And we can play the most beautiful music here and we can get you in the mood and dim the lights and blacken the ceilings and do all that and you walk out of here totally unchanged with no worship whatsoever. That's not what it's about. It's not what it's about. The right response when your life falls apart is to fall down and worship. Realize he is worth more than anything you might have lost. That if you've got him, you don't need anything else. That's worship. That's worship. And when Job opens his mouth in verse 22, look at what he says. In all this, Job sinned not, nor charged God foolishly. The Lord gave. The Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Proper attitude. Proper control of his tongue. You see, folks, again, I know myself. I know when difficulties come, when struggles occur, when something happens in my life that I wasn't expecting and didn't want to see. I will blame. I'll question. I'll wonder why. Job's response was to praise and to worship and to bless. Paul says this. Familiar words to you, I'm sure, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. There is no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful. God is faithful. Who will not suffer you to be tempted above that which you're able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape that she may be able to bear it. I want to plant an idea in your mind as I'm trying to plant it in my mind this morning as well and all through this series. When a trial comes into your life, it is permitted by God. God allowed it. And because of that, just as with Job, whatever God brings into your life, God also brings a path to walk your way through it. So when a, when what we need to do when the trials come is let him control the trial and take our hands off of it. I'm going to tell you something, folks, and this is the, the truth. Uh, this is right. <laughs> the only control you have when a trial comes into your life is your reaction to it. You will not control the trial. God's controlling that. What you control is your reaction to it. And in your reaction, you can either be humble and confess it and worship God, or you can blame and you can question and you can criticize. And if I humble myself and worship, God gets the glory. If I blame and I criticize, I dishonor God and I lose an opportunity to demonstrate his grace to others in my trial. You say, I'm not going through anything right now. Perfect. That's why you need to hear this. Because you need to get this settled now. Commit your way to the Lord now. Trust in him now so that no matter what trial comes into your life, you're already prepared to honor God in it. And in that response, others will be pointed to Jesus Christ in your trial and God's work is going to be accomplished in your life. Now, before we close, I want to say this. You may be here this morning have never trusted Jesus Christ to be your Savior. I want to tell you something. When you go through your trial that you're going to face either now or sometime in the future, you're going to face it alone. You've got nobody to go through with you. You see, without Jesus Christ, since God is not your father, you're not his child, he will not be there when the trial comes. There is no reason on earth to face a trial by yourself. God offers salvation this morning through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ upon the cross. If you will trust his payment as, that payment as payment for your sin, he will save you today. You'll become a child of God. And as a good father, at that point, no matter what comes into your life, as a good father, he'll walk through that with you. You'll not go through it alone. Today would be a great, great day to make the decision to make, become God's child. Listen to me, child of God. 
listen to me. There is nothing that you'll face in this life that he won't walk through with you. Nothing. No matter what it is you're going through right now, if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, he is right there beside you, walking through it with you. Don't do it yourself. It's crazy to go through it yourself. (laughs) Let him walk through it with you and allow him to do the work he wants to do through you and allow him to show Jesus Christ through you to your world. That's the purpose of the trial. Let's pray.